Welcome back to the Pedagogy Non Grata podcast, where we bridge the gap between the scientific literature and teaching in the classroom. I am joined here today with Holly, who is a uh, PhD student, and we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, which is uh, linguistic phonics. Um, but before I butcher anything, I'm going to let Holly introduce herself to the audience, please. Hey, um, my name is Holly Ely, and I am actually um, a kindergarten teacher. I have been teaching for over 20 years. Um, the bulk of my experience is really in the kindergarten classroom, but I've also taught from pre-K to second grade and also served as a literacy specialist and a teacher trainer um, for a large public school district. But I am currently um, also a PhD student in reading language and literacy. Um, and I have a, a specialization in the science of reading. And then I'm also um, at the same time currently working towards my certification in um, cognitive neuroscience and really love studying um, really more specifically like educational neuroscience. So. Um, that is what I am or who I am and, and what I really love, really passionate about um, doing all I can to try to bridge the gap between like research and practice um, for educators in, in the classroom. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm really glad you share that because I learned some things about you. In that <laughs> um, so today we're going to be really focusing on um, linguistic phonics or sometimes referred to as speech to print phonics. Um, but for our audience, would you mind explaining to them what that means? Um, sure. Um, when I think of like a speech to print type of approach to instruction, it's really an instructional approach that um, builds knowledge from the system, really from spoken language to written words. Um, and this type of instruction really begins with focusing on some aspect of speech, usually like um, a phoneme or syllable or, or morpheme. And then um, since those elements, those speech elements really, those linguistic elements really serve as kind of like the Velcro in your brain or um, like that, like learning peg that then you map um, graphemes and letters onto. So it's kind of a flip from the traditional type of approach that you typically see where it goes print um, and then you're sounding it out to speech. It's kind of, kind of the flip of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so what do you see as the potential benefits of a, a speech print approach? Um, well, uh, I find many of them. Um, and this has really been super fascinating for me to kind of dig into um, because I, I really feel like it's approach that in terms of um, being an educator in the classroom, it's, I don't know why, but it's really just one that people haven't really considered. But once you think it through, at least to me, um, not only does a lot of the new research kind of support it, but um, it totally makes sense on how, how kids actually learn. So one of the benefits that I see is that in my opinion, it really leverages what students like strengths are, or their, their knowledge. And so of course, right now I'm probably speaking more from um, like a lens of a kindergarten teacher. But when those little people come into preschool or kindergarten, you know, they have been speaking since, you know, essentially learning speech and spoken language since they were born. And um, what we do know from like cognitive science is that um, our brains as humans uh, are pre-wired for speech and language, but they're not 
pre-wired to read. And so, as you know, like when babies are born, um, you don't have to sit them down and tell them exactly how to move their lips and mouth and all of that in order to produce sounds. As long as they're exposed to language, you know, they start mimicking those sounds back. And then, you know, soon they're saying mama and dada and, and then they're, they're building their language. So when kids come into my classroom in kindergarten, one of their strengths is their, you know, oral language and, you know, producing sounds. And it, those are at least things they're, they're very familiar with. Um, and so I think going from a speech to print approach takes something they're at least familiar with and is meaningful to them. And it connects that new learning, um, which when we're talking about teaching kids how to read, really are those like abstract letter forms that are just circles and sticks to them. They don't really hold any meaning. And we're connecting that meaningless, um, like new learning, at least to something that is, is already known. Um, and so I think that is a, a huge benefit. I think that speech to print really, um, looks at what the students' uh, strengths are instead of looking at it instruction from like an adult who's mastered the system. Um, and, you know, any, seriously, you can find obviously thousands of studies within the fields of like cognitive neuroscience that say, you know, the most powerful productive learning occurs when you can connect new learning to something that is known. And so I, I feel, I really feel like speech to print does that. Um, another huge benefit I think is that another thing that we know from just learning science in general is that the more modalities you can engage in a learning activity, um, the more like solidified that learning will be. There's different, you know, um, neural pathways that are created and all of that. And so with speech to print, what you really incorporate in every activity that you do, um, you are engaging kids, um, you know, sound articulation with oral motor movements. And of course they're hearing those sounds and distinguishing differences. Then you're taking those things and, you know, either saying a word and breaking it down to parts and then writing it, um, taking that to, you know, spelling, um, which is also, you know, engaging sight too. So that that's, engaging so many more like body systems. So that is going to solidify that learning more than just like print to speech, which would just, you know, re really be taking in that visual information um, and then taking it to speech. You're totally not engaging, um, you know, you know, writing that. Um, so I think that is another huge benefit. Um, also, when you're doing a speech to print approach, since it uh, automatically like, includes encoding, like writing in the, all of the activities that you do. I think that it is just a much better connection for kids to connect those like graphemes and phonemes, those letters and sounds together. I mean, and if our end goal is to create a reader, you know, faster we can get to that end goal and connect those sounds with print. I mean, that's, that's great if we can accelerate that learning. Um, and like I said, there's, you know, there is a lot of research that's out there that isn't necessarily brand new, but um, like one of the studies from Hoover and Tunmer was talking about how this type of instruction um, develop like those essential neural pathways that connect, like we have an, like a visual processing system in our brain, um, but it's not pre-wired to that oral language part of our brain. And so by doing these speech to print activities that really helps um, connect those areas um, and start to 
kind of specialize that that area um, in our uh, visual processing system that starts to specialize in identifying letters. Um, and it, it just, I think, accelerates that whole process for kids in, in all the skills that they need to know um, to become a good reader. So I could go on and on. <laughs> uh, so that's right. so some I'm of trying, them. So um, I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, what a speech-to-text lesson looks like. Okay. And I'm, I'm curious, is it more that you would teach phonemic awareness first without letters and then teach the letter sounds or the letter correspondence the second, or is it more like in a, a regular lesson, you might introduce a sound, talk about the sound and then show them the letter correspondences for it? Yeah, I think it would depend on your grade level. I mean, of course, um, you know, at, at earlier ages, like preschool ages, three, three and four, it's imperative that we're like building up that, that um, vocabulary and, you know, that familiarity with like oral language and spoken language and all of that. But if you're talking about like maybe pre-K and kindergarten, um, then at least in my classroom, the way that I, I teach kindergarten and a lot of my kids do tend to have um, attended preschool, I think, so that they, they have had some exposure to some types of like you know, phonemic awareness, um, at least in part. But when they come into my classroom, um, what I used to do, of course, would be like, oh, we might pick a focus letter. And I would tell them this is the letter form B. Um, and it says, buh, which right away is odd because a letter doesn't really like say a sound. But so now I completely um, do it differently. Instead of asking them to start with a letter form that to them is just an abstract set of circles and sticks um, that really doesn't have meaning, that's really tricky for kids to put something that's really not that meaningful to them in their memory. And putting an abstract letter form in their memory is difficult enough. But then telling them, hey, this letter form says, buh. honestly, to most kids, when they hear that, they don't even, they think that that's a new sound. They don't even recognize that's already part of their spoken language. So you're asking them to have a pretty big cognitive load by like kind of uh, committing two things that aren't that meaningful or known to them, um, to memory. But so in my classroom, what we do is we start um, by saying, um, today we're gonna, we're going to talk about a special sound. You're sound experts. You've been talking, you know, since you were a baby, it's this sound, buh, buh. What words do you know that you've heard that sound in? It's like baby or banana. And then we all talk about sound or uh, words that are in their experience that have that sound, buh. And then I tell them, think about um, how, how do you make that sound? What is your mouth doing? And we talk about what our lips are doing and what our tongue is doing and all of that. And immediately with that very first sound, I talked to the kids about um, that if you are producing a sound where you have to block the airway in any way with your tongue or like restrict that airflow um, with your lips, that's what a consonant is. A consonant isn't a letter form. A consonant is a sound where you have to block the airflow in some way to produce that sound. That's what a consonant is. And so we talked about, oh yeah, we have to stop it. Um, with your lips. And so that's a consonant. We talk about how that's formed. Now, this is important to me because research has shown that not only do we not store words um, typically in our brains by just like memorizing a visual form, but really the bulk of um, 
our word knowledge is stored by um, phonetic representation and the articulatory gestures. So when you're talking about drawing attention to exactly what their mouth is doing with a sound they can already produce, it's really kind of fine tuning um, all of their awareness of all of this, which by the way, does great things for kids who have speech issues, who might articulate um, you know, these sounds incorrectly. So we talk about that sound and then um, we talk about if it's voiced or unvoiced and all of these things. And then we talk about, okay, that sound that you know that you're an expert at, if I wanna communicate that sound or put sounds together to make words to you know, communicate to someone else, I can't put sounds on a piece of paper. So we have to use a symbol to represent that sound. And so then we talk about things like how the golden arches represent McDonald's. And this is the same thing. A letter or a grapheme is going to represent these sounds that they already know. And so that's when I show them what that symbol is. So suddenly that new symbol, those sticks and you know circles, suddenly are meaningful to them because that can be a symbol for that sound they already know. And then we go into talking about you know the visual form of, of the letter. And um, I'm sure as you probably already know, also when humans are born, their um, visual processing system only processes everything they see as pictures. And so um, your brain processes everything as either a picture or a face with mirror invariance. And so when kids first starting, start to see letter forms, they don't see the difference because your brain is not supposed to notice the difference um, in regard to like orientation. So um, this is the point that as a teacher, you draw attention to um, like the visual details and all of that of letters. Um, so that your brain can start kind of sorting that out and building that visual uh, word form area that actually will, it, you, rewrite, you rewire the brain to process letters differently than pictures and faces. So we start with that sound, then we introduce and map on the letter form as that symbol to that sound. Um, and then in my classroom, that's when you practice handwriting because again if you're connecting those sounds with your mouth with the letter forms it's just multiple modalities for like solidifying that learning and then we have a sound wall and we have games we play with that so so that's what it looks like in in my classroom moving um in in terms of a lesson working from speech um and then connecting the print so how many lessons would it take you to get through the 44 sounds well i mean technically um like I would consider it, you know, 44 lessons. However, in the beginning, when kids first come in, um, it takes more than one day for to, to like establish all of that learning. So for example, at the beginning of the year, we talk about that focus phoneme and um, I have a really good block of time for instruction like this. So I will um, introduce that lowercase uh, letter form first and map that on and then take it to the sound wall and we do this game and have a big reveal. And then um, the next day I will introduce the, the um, capital form and tell them that typically we don't use that as often, but it's for, you know, names and beginning of sentences, stuff like that. But in the beginning, you might have to, depending on your group of kids, honestly, you, you might that first letter, it might take four days of going back and, you know, teaching them how all of this connects. But then after you're, you've been doing this for like a week or two, um, you can pump out, you know, a sound and connect letters because kids just start learning how to learn those, you know, in, in a 
day or so. So um, I typically find that my kiddos um, have the vast majority of, you know, graphemes mapped on to phonemes, um, you know, by, by fall for sure, which is much more accelerated than when um, I used to teach print to speech. So it's awesome to hear that it's improved your, your outcomes. Yeah. It's, um, we've been tracking it pretty closely just within my own school with our own data, um, you know, through Dibbles and we have star assessments and we do all kinds of other, you know, phonemic awareness assessments and things like that. And this is the first year that I have ever had absolutely every one of my students blow away the benchmark. And I mean, and I have three identified, um, like dyslexic kiddos in my class as well. And it's, it's, it is just really fascinating and very encouraging. So very interesting. So do you see any potential drawbacks to the speech to print approach? Oh, I, I, I definitely do. Um, unfortunately, um, I think the two biggest drawbacks that I see um, is that accepting or considering this approach of moving speech to print is different. And um, that in itself is a challenge because people like to do what they're comfortable with. Um, and um, I think the biggest hurdle is that in order to embrace this type of instruction, you have to understand the why. Like you truly have to understand how the brain processes and stores information to understand why these activities sincerely, you know, make a difference and, and how a speech to print approach probably aligns more closely to how kids actually learn to read. So I really feel like the biggest challenge right now is that teachers in the classroom just don't have the knowledge. They don't have the training. I mean, we're still at the point, unfortunately, in our country that a lot of our universities aren't, aren't sharing some of you know, the knowledge that we know about the science of reading and things like that. So I think that really teacher knowledge, um, because in order to really be able to do this successfully, I really feel like teachers themselves have to understand how phonemes are produced. They have to understand a lot of those elements of like speech articulation. They have to understand how the brain stores information and that, um, you know, we don't just memorize words by, you know, a visual picture. We have to understand the structure of the English language, which a lot of people don't understand. They don't understand morphology. They don't um, understand patterns with, within our, our language. And so I think that's a huge hurdle because if people don't understand why this is important or why this works, then they're never going to embrace that. So those are the two biggest drawbacks, I think. Those are fair. Um, so I, I have noticed that there doesn't seem to be a hundred percent agreement as to which programs are fully, uh, a speech to print. I, I had on here a while ago, Dr. Trush, who spent his whole life teaching speech to print and like, uh, huh. he's an expert in that field and the programs he cited as, um, 
speech to print, other people disagreed with him quite vehemently on. So I'm curious, which, which programs would you list to? The only ones that I, I, I feel like, according to my understanding, are that are out there currently that are popular, phonographics and logic of English. Um, it, yeah, you know, this is the interesting part for me, too, because um, uh, like a lot of things within the field of the science of reading, um, you often get can get like polar extremes. <laughs> um, and so everything is not as black and white as um, I think sometimes people might want it to be, you know, within the field of the science of reading, there, there's so much like gray overlap. And I, I do feel like specifically in regard to speech to print approaches, um, we are still lacking in a significant amount of um, research especially if you're going to look at like controlled studies that you can look at, there really have not been any large um, studies that, you know, are controlled and, you know, systematic, all of that, that compare like a speech to print versus print to speech. Um, now what we do have, we have other studies that have talked a lot about, um, uh, you know, different elements with, within it, you know, within a speech to print approach. But so I, I think that is, I think that's part of our problem is because it's hard to define exactly what a speech to print approach is. Like um, I went through the, the letters training that, you know, was kind of like led by um, Louisa Motes and all of that is very, um, you know, speech to print. However, that's not a program. That's more of like a training on like the background of it and all of that. So I think it's, I think it's difficult. And then I've read, I've researched a lot um, on both of the programs that you mentioned. And, um, and, it, and it's tricky because within everything that I'm reading about, there are definitely parts that I see, oh yes, I totally agree with that. But then there, there'll always be an element or two that I'm like, mm, I'm not sure. Or like that I see as so important um, in regard to like kindergarten instruction, but then as you get into older grades, how, how it kind of shifts. So um, I think it's super difficult. I think it's very difficult to, I can't pick a program that I think um, I would give a double thumbs up to in regard to speech to print, because I don't think there are a ton out there yet. Um, and it's almost like the knowledge is still being built. And this is one of the things that I, I always want to stress because whenever I'm talking to any teacher about this, I feel like the first question I get is, well, what program can I buy? And it's the program is never going to make the changes. Like, I feel like what's so important, this is my soapbox, is that teacher education, teacher knowledge is what we need because if the teacher is knowledgeable and truly understands all of the things that I feel like we should understand that we could take any good program and make it, you know, fit our students needs better. Does, does that make sense? So, yeah, you know, I actually, I, I'm going to push back on you a little bit here. If you yeah. don't mind. Uh, oh, no. not, not that I'm going to debate you or something, but uh, <laughs> I, I actually, I agreed with you up until very, very recently. Um, uh, because to be honest, I don't like the idea of programs. I've never personally, the yeah. only program I've ever used is words their way. And I've actually been very public about criticizing words their way, probably more so than normal. 
Uh, it's not a program I would recommend. Um, so I'm not actually a big proponent of programs, but right. when I look at the research, there's two things that make me worried about just relying on teacher training. One, research into teacher training in general tends to show low outcomes. Two, the, the letters program, which looks on paper to be fantastic. I've heard nothing but good things about it. All the research we have on it shows low outcomes. And then uh, I did this really, I really did a deep dive on the research into language programs this last year. And I saw some programs that looked really good on paper, get terrible results. And some programs that looked really no different on paper um, and get amazing results. And I, I, honest to God, I couldn't really figure out what the difference was. Like I, yeah. I could tell you like this program outperformed this program, but I can't really tell you why. Yeah. And I, for me, that makes it really hard to go out and say like to teachers, like, you know what, just learn the principles and, and teach according to them. Because I worry that there, maybe there are intangible factors here that the research is not fully flushed out. And yeah, absolutely. I almost wonder if people are better off just buying a good program. I don't, I still don't teach a program. I don't, I don't have a program. Uh, I, I, I have my own thing. That's how I teach, but, uh, I don't know if that's my best evidence-based recommendation. Sorry for my well, tried there. I do actually agree with you. Like I actually am a person that, um, uh, I'm not a program person really either, but I also realize that not many people love sitting and just reading research all of the time and, <laughs> and, and doing things the way that I, I, I do. And, I, I totally support and, and really do agree what you just said in regard to some of these great training programs, because I think the problem is I was just talking, actually two separate teachers um, reached out to me this week who live in Texas and just went through the Texas reading Academy, which was like 60 hours of all of this, all of this, um, you know, training on the science of reading. And they, they both initially said, you know, it was, it was awful. It was grueling. And I said, please tell me about it. I don't live in Texas. Tell me what you didn't like. And they said, well, actually the content seemed like it was good, but I think sometimes the biggest struggle is that even if we're told the correct things and we read the right research, many teachers might understand that, but they can't bridge that to what does that look like in the classroom? And so that is where most people probably do need a, a good program. And what we're also finding from a lot of this research that's come out, you know, in regard to the science of reading is like systematic, explicit and all of that. And so obviously that yields itself well, you know, to, to a program. Um, however, no program knows your kids better than you do. So I, I, I get, that I and I'm not sure exactly how we solve that problem because it is imperative for teachers to know the why and the research behind it, or they'll never be invested into, you know, carrying out you know the lessons or the or the program. But I feel like there's a huge gap between that research, even if it's brought to teachers in professional development, and what that actually looks like in the classroom. I mean, I know that was one of my biggest struggles when I was originally studying through all of this about four years ago is I kept looking out there for teachers who were in the classroom that had gone before me that could maybe share experiences with me. And the only people I could find were, um, you know, literacy specialists who, who I did learn a lot from, but it looks very different to teach one-on-one -on -one or in a small group than it does. I have, you know, next year I have 32 kids in my room. That's very different. And so I think that's a struggle too. And I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't either. I, 
I strongly believe that um, one of the most important things we can do is individualize our instructions as student needs. Uh -huh. um, and I, that's the thing I don't like about programs is they don't really encourage that. But I, I do agree with your, your comment that maybe the advantage of programs is that they're very systematic and yeah. then make sure that there's a set curriculum that the teacher is, has to cover. That, that's my guess, but uh, I don't really know if I'm being honest. Uh, it's just a, yeah. a weird thing in the research. I, I, I want to tell people that knowing the thing is better because I've spent the last three years of my life devoted to researching and trying to share that research with other people. So yeah. obviously I have a vested interest in wanting people to learn. <sighs> but. Yeah, um, I mean, and I think that for me, you know, I was trained in balanced literacy in my undergrad and in my master's program and even being trained as a literacy specialist. And to me, especially in retrospect, what I missed was balanced literacy was not systematic in its scope and sequence of skills. And so even though I felt like the kids were going out of my classroom and were rocking it and knew everything that they needed, like we were kind of randomly teaching, you know, phonics skills as they came up, but there was no guarantee that by the time that they were in third grade, they had learned all that they really should. And obviously they didn't. But so I, I do like the idea of having a scope and sequence of like foundational skills that we know that we need to address. Um, but yeah, I'm still kind of with you in regard to, um, I've never found a perfect program that you could like follow uh, exactly yeah. and, and get the right outcome, especially without that differentiation. You know, I mean, that is, you know, tier one is super important. I feel like solid tier one instruction is great, but you have to always have those differentiated small groups and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I agree, uh, and it's really tough. I could, I could dive in this conversation for another. I know, but um, I'm gonna ask. So you kind of alluded to this, and this is, you know, I'll, I, I, uh, I had in my interview with Dr. Trush on this topic, and he swept me up. He absolutely convinced me. I came out of the interview being like speech to print, linguistic phonics is the answer, and then I went to like go do my research on it and find uh, studies, and I really, I had a hard time finding any studies. And out of the studies I did find, people criticized me for saying that they're they're not true speech to print yeah uh, some of the the most hailed ones are phonographics but those studies have no control groups are you aware of yeah. any research that, that's on this specifically with like control groups you know i have like i said i haven't found any that like directly compare the two like print to speech speech to print that's why that is actually um where I'm headed with, with my research project and my dissertation, because we definitely need, um, we need studies like that. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that as, because I do feel like speech to print is getting more attention now. Oh yeah. And, um, I hope because of that, that there will be more research out there, but what I, I have found studies, um, you know, of course, like some of the classic ones, like, you know, black men from like 1991 and you know brooks has a more recent study out and there's even things like i said from like hoover and tunmer and like jewel from 2000 that their research has supported elements of speech to print but no control group studies of an actual like experimental whole, study yeah no and, and that is that's what we need for sure because yeah. I, I'm curious about it myself like I said I'm pulling off these things in my own classroom and I've because I just love research I'm constantly keeping track of all these things but it's my own data you know and so that that's not going to prove anything to anybody else and that's not you know what we need is evidence 
based instruction. And that's not going to happen with one, two, or, you know, six studies. We need, we need quantity. We need large studies. Um, we need controlled studies. So I am definitely hoping this will get attention um, to people because you can't, it's very difficult to tell other teachers out there to shift their instruction without a strong, broad research base for that. I mean, our, we've got studies that support it, but yeah, we definitely need, we need um, more. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm, I'm actually very optimistic about the idea of speech to print, but I, I just, as someone who's like, you know, written a book on, and actually technically I've written three, I'm just working on publishing the next two, but, uh, on the idea that, you know, we need meta-analysis to, to yes. determine what is science. I'm, I'm, I just remain like cautiously optimistic. Uh, Absolutely. Um, but I'm really glad that you came on the podcast uh, to make the case for today. And I really hope that you get to to do research on it. And if you if you do do some research on it, I'd love to have you back on to, the, to discuss. Absolutely. More. Yeah. I mean, my goal is it's tricky. It's like um, you definitely don't want to push anything out that isn't totally research based. But yet, if you have some supporting evidence, you want to start trying things out so you have something to test. You know, so I'm kind of stuck, stuck in the, in the middle there for sure. And so I hope I can, um, you know, pull off some good research that can help the cause. I really respect that. And I, I think I, I have a pet peeve of people in the industry, um, saying, making claims too strongly and saying things are like science or evidence-based before we have strong science or evidence. Yes. Yes. And, but I, you know, you're, I really feel like that's not what you're doing here in this conversation. And I think we need more of that. Actually, I think we need just nuance. And I think it's, it's totally 100% okay to be like, this is a thing. I, this is the argument for it. I think it totally makes sense. The hypothesis, we need to test this. Absolutely. That's, great. That, that's, that's what we need. Yeah. Well, I think some people miss that a lot of, you know, I honestly missed it when I was like crossing over into the science of reading, I was thinking, you know, the science of reading is like understanding how the brain works. And then, you know, that's the science. So let's just take what we learned and then let's just apply it in the classroom. But that is not, that's not the full story. That's only part of the science. And so what we need to do is look at that applied science of, okay, we can have theories on how the brain works and we can think that we have good ideas for instructional approaches, but we have to have those tested out. Because if you think about that's really what happened with whole language, people were observing it and they thought, oh, if people pick up language naturally, let's just immerse kids with, you know, books and, and then they'll pick that up. Well, that's not how it worked. <laughs> so, you know, um, I, my goal is to kind of uh, just raise awareness in people that there is this thing um, called, you know, speech to print and, you know, for me kind of trying things out and pulling every bit of research that I can, as you know, research changes every week. Exactly. Um, so you have to keep up with it, which is, you know, I think it's a super exciting time to be in education. I know some people would not agree, but um, it's, oh. it's an exciting time to be in reading um, education, I think. So, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and I really love that last paragraph you had there. Uh, I, I would, I'm almost tempted to just make that the entire interview and let people, let people listen to that <laughs> over and over again. Uh, that was great. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh, and sharing your, you your insight me. and wisdom with other people. 
Uh, well, nice to talk to you. Hopefully when I finish, I'll have some great results and can come back and talk to you again. <laughs> you know what? Even if you have bad results, I think that's there okay. You go. We can talk about learning, those right? That's part of science. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks a lot.